He began his career writing musicals, having a notable early success with The Robber Bridegroom and more recent acclaim for Love Music and Parade. But he's also written a number of plays that have been seen on stages across the U.S., including The Last Night at Ballyhoo, Edgardo Mine, now titled Divine Intervention, Without Walls, and of course, Driving Miss Daisy, which is making its Broadway debut 23 years after its premiere at Playwrights Horizons in New York. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, and I'm very pleased to welcome playwright Alfred Urey. Thank you, Howard. I'm very glad to be here. What's it been like living with Miss Daisy for 23 years? Because it's been such a success. It's I always lived with Miss Daisy fun. longer than that. I lived with my grandmother uh, my whole childhood. And uh, after she died and after her driver died, I... I had never written a play. I would only written books to musicals and I thought, well, I'll give it a whirl. And uh, it seemed like such a personal family story that I never imagined it would do anything beyond that first run at Playwrights Horizons. Did you always think you wanted to write about your grandmother and did this happen quickly after she passed? I think I always wanted to write a play. It never occurred to me to write about my grandmother until one day it did. It was actually when her driver died a couple of years later that it kicked in in my head. Why did you do you say you always wanted to write a play when you'd been writing musicals? Because I always wanted to write a play that was a real play and that uh, I didn't have to, you know, just go four minutes and then there's a song and then go, oh, I like writing books to musicals. I wanted to – I love plays. Plays were my first love and I, I wanted to – when I was a little boy, I'd go to the library to get the best 10 plays of 1949 and the best 10 plays of 1952. Always loved the theater when my mother would bring me to New York. My father was in the furniture business and uh, came up here twice a year from Atlanta. He didn't care much for the theater and he was tired at night. So after I was about oh, 12, my mother started bringing me with her as a buffer to go to the theater too. So she took me to As a buffer? Well, no, as a buffer so she didn't have to go to the th- drag him there. So you're an extra body is what you're saying. And I uh, was taken to things which I bless her for with no thought of whether they were too old for me or too sophisticated. She just took me. I remember she took me to see uh, Sidney Kingsley's The Detective Story. That was all about abortions. And I kept throwing that word around. And in the intermission, I said, what, it's an abortion? She said, don't worry. Just listen to the play. You'll figure it out. The next night, she took me to see The Mad Woman of Shio, which I didn't understand at all. But I loved it. And I, I just fell in love with, with plays. And by God, I, I wanted to write one. But I was – I knew I wanted to be very careful and I didn't want to just smack out something. I wanted to do something that I could be proud of. And then when it occurred to me to write about them and my childhood, it was right there in front of me. Maybe the story is apocryphal. But I heard that part of what drove you to write Miss Daisy – was after America's Sweetheart at Hartford Stage, which was a big, huge production, was not successful. You said, you know what? I'm done with needing all of these other people and other things and set out to write the simplest thing you could imagine. Is that at all true? (laughs) Yes, it wasn't that cogent, (laughs) but it was true. So as we skip around – a show like America's Sweetheart, where you'd gone to a regional theater, it was a musical about Al Capone. You had a great team. Jerry Friedman directed, if I remember correctly, and Graciela Danielle choreographed. Um, 
you had everything that a regional theater could throw at it. Were there still limitations? Was the show not fully realized? Uh, I found it. We went – we had started at Northwestern. We did a half a semester's internship at Northwestern. And then we went to Hartford. And then after Hartford, I think we went to uh, Coconut Grove in Miami. And we kept working on it. And I realized somewhere along the way that I just didn't care very much about Al Capone. And I didn't have that much to say. It was like a job that turned into, oh, my God, it's still going on. And that was more, I want to write something I really care about. Hmm. So with Miss Daisy, again, perhaps an apocryphal story, only because I was at Hartford Stage the following season um, from America's Sweetheart, I was told that um, you originally, when you finished Miss Daisy, offered it to Hartford Stage, showed it to Mark Lamas. And Mark says he declined it. And I, don't, I don't remember that. Well, he it was very interesting because he made the statement that he said, I turned it down. It would have been lost on our stage. It would have been done here and never seen again. It would have never gotten those actors. So perhaps you don't recall. Perhaps Mark is misremembering or I'm not getting the story right. But let's talk a little about the alchemy of that original production. Well, as I recall it, we submitted it to several places and they all seemed to want to do it. Hmm. But – and I, I wanted to stay in New York. So maybe Mark's right. I just don't remember that at mm-hmm. all. And uh, Playwrights Horizon seems like an ideal place to do it. They had a 74-seat theater. I don't know if you remember that there, upstairs theater. It was a, one of the best little black boxes in the world. And um, – Andre offered me the slot and um, I didn't know Dana Ivey. I didn't know Morgan Freeman. But I knew Dana was from Atlanta and the place set in Atlanta. So that seemed a good idea. And I'd seen Morgan and I thought, well, that's okay. He's not really old enough and he's too good looking and he's this and he's that. But the very first day of rehearsal, his he brought the character in. He was there. And he said to me, we knew the same man. And uh, so he just played it. And Dana was – you know, from Atlanta and understood the whole thing. The third actor was a wonderful man who's been gone a long time now named Ray Gill. And we had no expectations, or at least I didn't. The three of us, you know, the three actors and the director, Lon Rogorcino and me, just sort of knocked it out. And from the very beginning, it had some kind of a light around it. People loved it. Well, people loved it to the extent that it has been done probably by – Almost every theater, large and small in America, at some point or other over the past 23 years. Of course, there was the very successful and acclaimed film. I was interested to find that there was even a TV pilot. Yes, there was. (laughs) You have to tell me about the TV pilot. That happened because Richard Zanuck, who had done the movie and went out on a limb to do the movie, and I felt that I owed him something because Dick Zanuck had really gone to bat for my play. And he, he wanted it to be a TV series. And I thought, well, that's the least I could do for him is to write this pilot. I didn't want to. I thought, you know, pretty soon we'll be having a board game with Miss Daisy if I keep this up. And uh, so I wrote the pilot. We had very good – actually, we had Joan Plowright playing Miss Daisy. We had Bob Guillaume playing Oak. And so everything was wonderful. They loved we shooting the pilot. And, uh, and the day they shot the pilot – was the day of the uh, Watts riots in uh, in L.A. 
and people were burning down stores and not the Watts riots. You're talking about the ninety four, the ninety four, ninety. I don't remember the year, but that yeah. one. Okay, that one. Right, and it was just you know got a Dameron going on out there, and uh, somehow or other that sort of turned the tables around. They had all these people that were out there in Burbank in, in their uh, fancy cars, scared to drive home. So I had a rented Ford. People <laughs> I never drove home with me, hmm. uh, and it just wasn't the time for it. It wasn't. Hmm. As I said at the beginning, living with Miss Daisy. Referring to the play, not to your grandmother. Here you are now, 23 years later, coming to Broadway. A scale of stage that I imagine would be one of the larger theaters it's been done in. Um, And this time you're going in with stars. Yes. Which was not the case, as you said. You didn't know Dana Ivey. Most people didn't know Dana and Morgan at the time that they did this play. Um, What's the experience now and how involved are you with the production now? Uh, much more involved than I thought I'd be, Howard. I find myself there every day uh, because I'm, I think I'm helpful. I think also I like being around. Uh, pronunciation of words, things people want to ask me about why this and what is that and I'm there to answer. Uh, but to see these, these actors – Plus, you got to add Boyd Gaines to the mix, and he—I don't think he won four Tonys for nothing. He's very good. These people are like magicians; they—they turn into these people right in front of my eyes. I don't know what they do; they just seem to do it, and it's thrilling for me to be there and and watch them work. What is it like to have seen? Since presumably, I mean, you don't go to every production, but presumably, you've seen a number of productions over the years. I, I made a decision at the very beginning that unless I was going to be directly involved in the production, I wouldn't go because huh. I realized if I went to one, I'd have to go to all or I'd have to go to a lot. And I, now I, I could always say I don't go. Hmm. People beg me, you know, and sometimes it's friends and sometimes – some of them I'd like to see. But I know that it's painful for me to see things of mine that I haven't had a hand in. And I'm always sat in the middle of some row somewhere and I can't get out. And I – it's better this way. Hmm. So on stage, how many actresses have you seen play Miss Daisy, do you think? Okay, so Dana Ivey. I saw Franny Sternhagen. I saw Dame Wendy Hiller. I saw Julie Harris. I saw Ellen Burstyn. I saw Charlotte Ray. I saw Dorothy Loudon. I saw Dana Ivey's mother, Mary Nell Santa Croce. And now I'm seeing uh, Vanessa Redgrave. So you've seen I've seen I've Jessica number. Tandy and Jessica in the movie. And so. Jessica Tandy in the movie, of course. It's interesting because you mentioned – you've mentioned a couple of British actresses. You mentioned Joan Plowright for the TV pilot. And certainly Wendy Hiller and now Vanessa Redgrave. And, and, and Jessica. That's true. Although when I when thinks of her as spending so much of her life here um, – you talked about going to rehearsals and helping people out. Are you more of a resource when you're dealing with an actress who's not an American playing the role? Well, probably because I remember with Dana, she just knew all those southern things and she didn't have to worry about pronouncing. British actresses have trouble saying – in the play, they go to, to Mobile, Alabama. British actresses have trouble saying Mobile. 
with a truly southern with an Atlanta actress, you don't have to worry about that. Hmm. And I don't expect. I mean, Vanessa's very good. They were all these British ones are very good. They're not sound perfect at being southern, but who cares? Hmm. They're certainly great enough actresses, though, that it doesn't matter. Hmm. When the show was done originally, Dana and Morgan were. I'm assuming late 30s or 40s. Maybe in their 40s. Um, Vanessa Redgrave and James Earl Jones are the considerably the, older. They're the age of the character. Well, the age of the character, they're closer to the age of the character at the start or at the end because the play has them age over 25 years. Well, James is a little older. James Earl is a little older than Vanessa. She's she's the age of Miss Daisy at the beginning mm-hmm. and he's the – you know, he's in the middle there. So, um, yes, they age, but they, they're magic and they age the way that they age, like, like real people age, not like <laughs> walking around with tremors. They're good at what they're doing. Hmm. And do you have any temptation? Have you ever had any temptation to make any changes to the play since its first success? No, but I've had, I've had I mean, even here, I do tiny little. Leads and things that will help the set along, nothing that anybody would ever notice and nothing that I'm going to put in the published version. But I'm sitting there and they're saying, listen, we, we, we want to do this or that. Can we just cut this one little – yeah, so sure. Hmm. We've spoken already about – to the current play, back to when when you were a child, you, you said your mom brought you up to New York to see shows. Yes. At what point – Did you decide you wanted to do theater? There wasn't a point. I just – I always wanted to do it. I always knew when I was a kid in Atlanta that I was going to get out of there and I was going to come to New York and I was going to write for the theater. Why were – you were going to get out of there so that you could come write for the theater? Yeah. I mean – And it was always writing. You didn't want to act. didn't want to do anything else. I didn't – although I went to the movies a lot, it wasn't movies. It was always the New York theater. And when I was a kid, there wasn't any real Atlanta theater to speak of. Now there is. You can there are a lot of plays being written and performed by Atlanta playwrights in Atlanta. And I suppose I could have stayed there if, if I'd have waited fifteen or twenty years. But at that point, there wasn't. And I wanted to be in New York. I love New York, and I still love New York, and I've lived here fifty something years now. So you went to Brown. I did. Why the choice of Brown? My father didn't go to college and I was the first male in my family to go to college. And my father took me on a college tour and I was one of those kids who would have done anything to please my father. I was just excited that I was going to be sleeping in the room with my father on this college tour because I wasn't with my father that much. So he must have arranged where we went. I don't, and we went – I remember we went on the train from Boston to Providence. We got in a cab and we went up the hill to Brown. And we got out of the camp. My father said, this is the greatest campus I've ever seen, most beautiful. And I said, this is the greatest campus I've ever seen, the most beautiful. And, uh, I, you know, I had this interview. And I assumed that I was then accepted at Brown. I was a little naive about all that. Oh, you mean the, the interview was I all you thought that talk. was it. Mm-hmm. And I came home from, from school in March or so. And my mother said, guess what? You got into Brown. I said, I know that. She said, how could you? The letter just came today. And I'm embarrassed that I opened it. I said, I got in last August when I was there. She said, no, you didn't. So I was delighted to go, changed my life. 
started my career. I met my future wife in theater class. So I don't know where I'd be without Brown. Okay. So from Atlanta via Providence to New York. Right. You did not instantly begin a career in the theater when you came to New York. No, I had a very good friend from Brown named Robert Waldman and we – we came to you know, he was a year older, but he was a composer. So we were gonna be Rogers and Hammerstein. We we're gonna come to New York and knock them out of the park writing musicals. And we got hooked up with Frank Lesser, who had a publishing company, and Frank signed us on. And uh, the deal was we were supposed to I don't know what we were supposed to do exactly. I guess write songs that they were gonna publish. But we also one of the, the benefit was that Frank Lesser critiqued our stuff every month or so. Hmm. So it's like a master class just for us. And he taught me a lot about writing words. And he was talking about lyrics, but I find it true with playwriting. He said, you have to be accountable for every syllable you write. You can't slough anything off because some singer or some actor is going to say, why am I doing it this way? And you better have a good answer. And I've always believed that. So what kind of songs were you writing for Frank Lesser? Well, my partner Waldman had a dream, bless his heart, that we would write a musical of the James Dean film or the Kazan film of East of Eden. And that's what he wanted to do more than anything. So we did it. And this is this was what Lesser was paying you to do was write musicals? Just about. It wasn't that you were supposed to be churning out did, pop songs for Frank Music to publish. Us. Yeah, we were, but we weren't very good at that. Okay. So we turned out – we wrote this musical called Here's Where I Belong based on East of Eden, which uh, Steinbeck – Mr. Steinbeck was a good friend of Frank Lesser's. So he gave us the rights to do it. And uh, I wasn't a playwright then or a book writer. So Mr. Steinbeck had a – had just been traveling in Europe with his two teenage sons and the tutor. And the tutor wrote the book. The tutor was Terrence McNally. And uh, the three of us embarked on this show. And uh, it was belabored and heavy and beautiful, beautiful music. But the rest of it was pretty deadly. It uh, opened in Philadelphia and was a disaster, a disaster, heartbreaking and in their wisdom, the producers decided to bring it to New York. Lasted one night. I got a job teaching school. I was married. I had three kids. And uh, it was so devastating that nothing's ever quite reached that low. I mean, I started at the, so far in the basement that everything else had to be an improvement. Have you ever looked back at it, the actual material? No, Bob Waldman keeps trying to get me to it. <laughs> no. The music was beautiful. My lyrics weren't so good. Do you think the underlying material can be musicalized? And you just weren't up to it at the time? I wasn't up to it. I I kind of think almost anybody with the right slant or anything would probably musicalize something like my trip to the dentist, but I didn't I didn't know how to do it. And it was just kind of formulaic worn out Rogers and Hammerstein. Hmm. So as you said, you're teaching school. Mm-hmm. You and Bob Waldman are still writing musicals. Right. Maybe not getting paid anymore by Frank Lesser to do so. That's right. Um, 
how did the robber bridegroom come to be? I was in a uh, bookstore and I – before I realized I had too many books in my life and that me going to a bookstore is like an alcoholic going to a bar. Uh, I was in a bookstore and I'm looking at the Eudora Welty books and I loved Eudora Welty. I loved all her short stories and I see this little pink and green book called The Robber Bridegroom. I'd never heard of The Robber Bridegroom and I picked it up and I started thumbing through this little paperback and I thought, oh my god, this would make a great musical. It was instantaneous. I wrote to her and she wrote back, well, people have tried but uh, hadn't worked. I said, please let me try. And she said, all right, I will. And no no advance, no, no down payment, no nothing. And we wrote a version of it. And that's when uh, St. Clement's Church was starting this musical theater program. I think Stuart Ostro was in charge of it. And the Robert Bridegroom was their first venture. And uh, it worked very well. Wonderful man named Raul Julia was the Robert Bridegroom. And we did it. John Houseman came to see it and ran, I don't know, what, 10 performances? That's, I mean, it ran as long as it did. It did very well. And he said that his, his graduating class from Juilliard happened to be very musical. And he's starting this acting company. And they'd love to do the Robert Bridegroom. And he said, I have people that can really sing. So, uh, well, he did. He had Kevin Klein, he had Patti Lapone, he had on and on like that. So they did the Robert Bridegroom as part of a tour. Well, we should explain. I mean, the acting company was Which, the acting company, and that was the first class. And they they were a touring, primarily. They were conceived of as a classical touring right. company. So the idea that they were going out with a musical, well, the musical, and it was their first season. I mean, it was their second season, but they were doing, you know, very like. Marlowe's uh, Edward II and they were doing pretty esoteric things and the three sisters and then the Robert Bridegroom. It was a little – but uh, it was a wonderful, delicious production. We came to New York to the old Hartness Theater up there near Lincoln Center and we ran in New York for three weeks and Patty got a Tony nomination and I got a Tony nomination for the book. And the next year, it came back to New York again for the third time, this time with Barry Bostwick in the lead. And we had a and fit. that time in a commercial production, in a real commercial production, and that one uh, won Barry a, a Tony, and it did okay, and uh, it was a delightful experience. And uh, then there wasn't a lot of good work after that until finally ended up at uh, down there in Florida with Al Capone, America's Sweetheart. Well, well, you're skipping fast past a few things I, I want to ask you about because it may have been it may have been a tricky time, but there was a musical called Chapeau, yeah, an adaptation was. of Italian Straw Hat. That was also for the acting company. Mm-hmm. Um, something called Swing, which played in oh. Delaware and at the Kennedy Center. Oh my God, I forgot about Swing. <laughs> Swing was a musical written and directed by Stuart Ostro, hmm. who was a producer. He certainly wasn't a writer and he wasn't a director. But he'd worked a lot with Bob Fosse, so he's operating like Bob Fosse. And this was a musical about the swing era that he wanted Bob Walden and me to write these pastiche songs. So we did and uh, I noticed the rehearsals were interesting because he never did anything but run-throughs. Two run-throughs a day, run-through, 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 run-through. And every time anybody would say something about period, he would say period, that doesn't matter, that doesn't matter. And I thought, this is very curious. Who was directing it? Stuart Astro. Oh. And 
I've never been on a show before or since. It was just all run-throughs and no questions asked about period, none of that. So it didn't make any sense. His theory, the thing was supposed to be about the swing era from 1938 to 1945. And his idea was that the first scene was in 1938 at the Dartmouth Winter Carnival and the second scene was on the Santa Monica Pier and the third scene was somewhere else. And all these people are dancing on the same and performing on the same stage. So I said, so what if the guy from 1938 steps on the foot of the guy from 1942? Or do they see each other there? That doesn't matter. So I never knew what was going on, but it was an experience. Hmm. You then, over the course of about four years, worked with the Goodspeed Opera House. Yes, sir. Oh, see, I left all that out. You did, but I, I want to hear about this because this was an era where Goodspeed, as it had begun, was still finding period musicals, right. shows from the 20s, maybe the 30s. And the Audis. <laughs> My first one was Little Johnny Jones from 1904. Was that actually the first one? Yeah. Yeah. So – but the books were unplayable. Exactly. They were completely unplayable. They were full of horrible racist Chinese jokes and there's a song called Welcome to the Land of Wang and and th- impossible things. But it had that famous score. It had Give My Regards to Broadway and, and Yankee Doodle Dandy and so forth. So um, we just – or I, I was, I was able to do it by myself. I got a hold of a lot of Cohen songs that were in the trunk and sort of shoehorned different ones in and out and wrote what to me was like a giddy MGM musical with that story. We had a very good uh, actor playing uh, little Johnny Jones. He couldn't dance, Tommy Hultz. And it, uh, the thing was famous for Jimmy Cagney kicking his heels up like crazy. But Tom was wonderful. Jerry Gutierrez, who was a dear friend of mine, directed it. It was very sassy and very cute, and it was a huge success at good speed. And then it toured for a year with David Cassidy playing Little Johnny Jones. And then it was decided it would come to New York with Donny Osmond playing Little Donny Jones. And it got fancier and fancier, and all the innocence that was in it was knocked out of it. Hmm. And so I may be the only... Writer in New York who's had two shows in on Broadway that lasted one night. Hmm. But I did. When you say the innocence was knocked out of it, you were in many ways creating a new show. It was like crazy for you or, or yeah. other shows that, yeah. have, that have been built upon right. the skeleton of, those. of 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 um, older shows. Did you have a degree of control? Were you able to say no, no to the I changes? Didn't. I there was. The dangerous thing, Howard, is those things happen very subtly. They happen over a period of time. John Lee Beatty had done the set at good speed and uh, it was this candy box set that didn't look remotely real. Right. And it, well, and it's good speed where the stage is 20 oh, right. feet wide and 12 feet deep right. and, and everything's a roll drop. And But it was delightful. Well, by the time it got to this fancy one coming close to New York, famous set designer named Robert Randolph did very sort of realistic, elaborate sets. And the costumes, instead of being candy box looking, were beautiful. And it just smoothed it out. Hmm. You did other work at good speed in the same way. I saw Follow Through, a show that, oh, many, yeah, that many people don't uh, even know of. A good score, though. 
Um, what were the others? Because I think you said to me you did five. I did. I, I did Funny Face Gershwin. I did Bloomer Girl. Little Johnny Jones. Follow I did through. Uh, fo- follow through, and I did another one. Hmm. Oh, uh, high button shoes. Hmm. Was it rewarding to be working on an existing template with existing scores? Did you have the freedom to interpolate songs on all of them? Well, I didn't need to interpolate songs on Bloomer Girl. It was pretty sad. High button shoes. I don't think they did much. I didn't do much on that one. But the other three, I was free to do whatever I wanted. And I was finding my uh, my sea legs at writing dialogue. And nobody was going to stop me and nobody wanted to stop me. And I would construct scenes that I would try to get as many laughs as I could and so forth. And I learned how to, how to write books for musicals. Well, it's interesting because you learn how to write a book – but you don't have collaborators in the right, sense of you don't have a lyricist, you don't have a songwriter. Yes, you have a director and a choreographer, but you are the only living writer on the piece. They had a – I don't know where he is now, but they had a choreographer up there. I'm sure you remember your name, Dan Serretta. Sure. And Dan Serretta's uh, position was he would stage these numbers, long, complicated numbers would stop the show absolutely ice cold. And I don't mean stop it like uh, – Wonderful stop, but I mean stop it because everybody forgot what was going on and these dance numbers would go on for 10 minutes or 15 minutes. But there was a lot of tapping. A lot of tapping, a lot of windmills, a lot of <laughs> stuff like that. And uh, But I had a couple of very good directors. Jerry Gutierrez was one. And we worked together creating the show. And yes, it was like writing a new musical that I didn't have to collaborate with anybody on the music. Hmm. Now, we've already spoken of – Driving Miss Daisy at Playwrights Horizons and how it came together. But what was the effect on you? Because it wasn't the same as having suddenly a smash Broadway show, but you had an extremely successful off-Broadway hit that was generating multiple productions around the country and presumably around the world. Did that change your perspective at the time about what you could do or what you wanted to do? Well, at first with Miss Daisy, it was such a shock to me that I thought it was a fluke. And I thought, people are going to catch me out. I don't know what I'm doing. I did that. I don't know how I did it. I don't know what I did. But I got by with it. And I was, unfortunately or not unfortunately, I was raised to be very modest about my abilities. And that didn't help me. Uh, I was unable to realize that it's a good play which I now am happy to say that I think it is. And uh, it had not only that kind of success, it was made into that incredibly successful film. I won an Oscar. It won an Oscar. I mean, it took me to the stratosphere pretty fast. And uh, it took me a while to – I kept thinking, all those years I kept thinking, I could go back, I could go back, I could handle it if this hadn't happened. That's in a way of just not accepting what happened. And I was, you know, I I got to write a lot of movies and a lot of them didn't get made, but I got paid to write them. So I was able to continue writing with the theater. And uh, I wrote, uh, I was asked to write a play to celebrate the Olympics in Atlanta, Georgia for 1996 when they had the Olympics. And uh, they asked me a couple of years earlier. And I said, do I have to write about sports? 
They said, you can write about anything you want. And I thought, well, I want to write a play about the last time Atlanta was the international spotlight, which was the world premiere of the film A Gone with the Wind. And I was just a tiny baby then, but it was a part of my life. And then I realized, okay, and I could write that. That's when Hitler was invading Poland that same fall, winter. And uh, I would write about these dances that they had at the German-Jewish club in Atlanta called Ballyhoo. And I I, uh, thought I would write my parents' love story, which I had loved and uh, which I was brought up on and my father taking my mother to a dance and leaving her there and uh, how they made up. And so I wrote this play, The Last Night of Ballyhoo, and it was again, it was a success. It did Hmm. well. But I should just note that you've skipped from the original production of Miss Daisy in 1987 to 96. As you said, there was the movie, there were other movies you wrote. You were actually, were you fully away from the stage for a nine-year period? Pretty much. Wow. Because that's that's a big gap, it would seem, for somebody who just, in some ways, broken through on the stage. Well, my head was stupid, but I was making money. Yeah. And I had four children, and um, they were going to college by then. And yes, I'm glad I did it because I, I had the wherewithal to do it. Uh, and I thought, oh, I don't care about the theater anymore. The movies is where it's at. But it wasn't true for me. Hmm. So Ballyhoo, after the Olympics production, not something I've often said, um, came to Broadway in a commercial production. Directly. It directly. It wasn't the case of a Driving Miss Daisy, which went to a small not-for-profit. You went right we went to Broadway. We went to the smallest house on Broadway, the sure. A's, But we did come right to Broadway with no stars. Ain't I, again, but no stars. No stars then. No stars then. Uh, but a very good cast. Yeah, Jessica Heck, Paul Rudd. We had a very good cast. But uh, didn't get a good review in The Times. I've never gotten a good review in The Times. Uh, so a, a play with no stars and a not good review in The Times, uh, it's pretty doomed. But this wasn't. It had good word of mouth. It won the Tony for Best Play of the Year. It ran a year and a half on Broadway, 500 performances. And also has been done a lot. I'm blessed. How did Parade come into being? Uh, I knew Hal Prince. Not too well, but I knew him. And he read my play the last night at Ballyhoo. And he said, why were these Jews assimilating so hard? What was it that they were trying to get away from? I said, oh, well, that was probably Leo Frank case. Because, you know, I know about the Leo Frank case, but but tell me about it. So I told him a brief outline, and he stood up from his chair, and he said, that's a musical. That's my next musical. And I thought, oh, my God. And I called my mother, who was then about 90 years old, and I said, I've got no good news. I'm going to do a musical with Hal Prince. And she said, it's about Leo Frank, isn't it? How did you know that? She said, because I knew it had to be something that I would be afraid of. Uh, hmm. So it was originally supposed to be Sondheim was going to write it with but with me. But he had just done Passion, and he didn't want to do another downer, he said. And so we went from Sondheim to a friend of Daisy Prince's, Jason Brown, 
who was 23 years old and auditioned for it and blew me away when he wrote these things. And I mean, I was older than his father and uh, we collaborated very well and uh, did the show. It seemed to do that show forever. We were connected with Garth Drabinsky for a while and live in theater. We went to Toronto. We did readings and readings and readings. Finally, we did it at Lincoln Center. And uh, again, the New York Times really didn't like it. And uh, it ran its, its its term of a couple of months at Lincoln Center. But nobody could afford They couldn't keep it going. We we opened it at Christmas time. So we managed to hang on until the end of February. And Hal kept saying, if you, we could hang on until March. We're going to get Tony nominations. And that's what happened with uh, – which one was it? I guess Sweeney Todd. And it will run the year. But we couldn't hang on. We did get the Tony nominations and Jason and I won the Tonys. But it was done and it was over and – but it was never written to our satisfaction. It was big and it was too big and it rambled a lot. And Rob Ashford had been the assistant choreographer to uh, of Patty Burge. And Rob loved Parade and started doing work in England. And worked with Michael Grandage on a couple of musicals. And Michael said, I'd love you to do a musical of the Don Mar. What do you want to do? And he said, I want to do Parade. Now, you've jumped ahead almost 10 years now. Right. But Parade's just sitting there. And, well, I was telling about Parade. And then they asked me, did I want to do Parade of the Don Mar? And I practically came through the telephone. I said, my God, it's the most exciting thing I've ever heard in my life to go to the Don Mar, me? Hmm. So Jason, why? I, why was that so exciting? Oh, because I've been to the Donmar and I knew what wonderful productions they did. And this was going to be a tiny where we had thirty-seven people. This was going to be fourteen people in and, a two hundred-seat house, yes, or, or thereabouts. And, it and and so Jason and I went to London and we cast it. And I thought, well, British, what do they know about this all? Well, it was a wonderful cast, and Jason and I ended up writing, rewriting about twenty-five, thirty percent of it. And we played the Don Mario smash. It was a, it was unbelievable. And there was some review. It was like a dream review. It said – it fussed at Ben Brantley for saying, how could you say that about this wonderful show? Hmm. And then we did it again, the same production, the Don Mario production, last year at the Mark Taper in California, another smash. But scaled up then, if you move, mm. if you move to the taper, it would have to be a large. It's a larger house. Yeah, it's a larger house, but it looks just like a. Mm-hmm. From what two hundred, what the taper is like five hundred. I think it's closer to seven, but but it, it grew back a little bit more, and it was a perfect experience for us. Mm-hmm. And that's where it stands now. And do you think the show is now finished? Yes, I do. You're- yes, I do. So now, if people want to produce parade. Will they produ- will they be licensing? We're doing the Donmar the version. Donmar production. Yeah, the, the, the original. We've taken the other one off. Interesting, interesting. Now, have to ask: in the case of the run of the three plays that we were and play and musicals, Driving Miss Daisy, Last Night at Ballyhoo, Parade, all dealing with themes of being Jewish in the South, which well, is of course how me. you were raised. I seem to go back to my roots all the time. Well, not not every time, but that's what I seem to be. That's where my artistic head basically lives. If I'm going to make it up, it's going to be usually be about that. If it's, a, I've done some stuff, other stuff that were 
different things and one I've done it for instance when I was writing films I did a readaptation of the Sinclair Lewis novel Dodsworth that was made into a great film starring Walter Houston and I was hired to rewrite that film for Harrison Ford back in the 90s and uh, it never happened but I had rewritten it and uh, Andre Bishop at Lincoln Center who's a good friend said uh, can I read that? I've always wanted to do Dodsworth the play, but it's so stodgy. So he read my. He said, "Could you turn this back into a play?" And I did. So that's going to be done. Hmm. Lincoln Center. We had a fantastic reading of that. John Lithgow, Laura Linney. I'm hoping we'll get them to do it. They say they will. Hmm. But to stay stay on the theme of of growing up Jewish in the South results in you're always telling the story apparently, of outsiders trying to fit in. You know, I'm not aware that I'm setting out to do that. I guess I just The element is way. there because even in Miss Daisy where well, two it's outsiders. perhaps, you know, less explicit. It, yes, it's two outsiders together. But there is, you know, you're aware of, as you apparently did growing up, Jewish families celebrating Christmas and, and dealing with all of that. That's the way I was brought up. Hmm. And for me, it was, was not at all uh, exotic. It was just the way that we were. Hmm. So then when you wrote your next play, Edgardo Mine. That was a commission. Okay. But was it a commission to tell that story or was it a commission to just simply write a play and you chose the subject? Commission to take that book and turn it into a play. Interesting. So who commissioned it? Um, Jane Harmon, who had produced Miss Daisy and Ballyhoo. Mm-hmm. And uh, she commissioned me to adapt that book into a play, which I did. And it had a sort of a troubled production at, at Hartford Stage. I didn't get along with the director. Uh, and then uh, a couple of years later, Mark Lamos did it. We did it in Minneapolis at the Guthrie. I loved Mark's production. And we should explain that Mark had left Hartford Stage Long when you had done it there, so he wasn't involved in he the Hartford involved. Stage production. No, he was gone. It's just connections. It just happened. Well, yeah. if, if you stay in the theater long enough, everybody sort of knows everybody. <laughs> the wires cross and recross and come around again. Uh, so that play was done successfully a couple of years ago at the, at the uh, Guthrie. And I've been trying to get a, either a New York or a London production ever since. But I'll tell you what's happened is all this uh, – talk and all this information about priests abusing little boys has hurt this play, although this play is not about that. Well, we haven't explained what the play is about. The play is set in the middle of the 19th century. It's about a child in a big family in the city of Bologna in Italy, a little infant who is dying. And uh, his parents leave him to get some rest in the care of a nurse a young, ignorant country girl who, unbeknownst to them, baptizes him so he'll go to heaven and he lives. They don't even know that happened. So six or seven years later, this girl's gone all over the place blabbing to everybody. And since uh, Bologna was in a papal state, it was illegal for a Christian child to live in a Jewish house. So they sent an army, a papal army, to get this six or seven-year-old child the parents had no idea that it was coming. They, they took this child. The parents didn't know where he was. They, most of the plays about how they tried to get him back. They never did get him back. And his, he was brainwashed. He became a priest. 
Hmm. So it's an interesting story. And I like the play, and I, I think it'll happen one of these days. Why the choice? As I mentioned at the beginning, it was first called Edgardo Mine. It is now called Divine Intervention. Well, a lot of people didn't like my title. But as an author, do you say it's the right title, or do you say I have to change the title because I guess people don't like it? It wasn't completely right. I wasn't going to change Driving Miss Daisy. I wasn't going to change Last Night of Value. Did anybody want you to change those? No. Okay. <laughs> yeah, they thought Last Night of Value was too long. Mm-hmm. But it, that was the name of it. It just came with its name. And I didn't really care. Uh, that I, I didn't think Edgardo Mine was such a great title. It was okay. Mm-hmm. And Divine Intervision, it sort of sets it up better and – Hmm. So then, love music. You've already mentioned Hal Prince. So, love sir, music. Was, was that something Hal came to you with? Hal came to me. The uh, Court Vile estate had given him carte blanche to go through the Court Vile catalog and use whatever songs he wanted to tell the story of the love story of Court Vile and Lodelania. And I didn't know that much about him except I loved the Three Penny Opera and I liked a lot of their stuff. And I started reading it and listening to those songs and I thought, oh, I could do this. This is fun. So I was writing this musical biography. And we did. We used so many songs. And we had a wonderful cast. We had uh, <clears throat> Michael uh, – Michael Service. Michael Service. We had Donna Murphy. We had David Pitu. We had a wonderful cast. David Pitu was Brecht. Uh the show, as written, was sort of a skeletal thing that moved very quickly from song to scene to song to scene. And as produced on the stage, it was heavily costumed and a lot of scenery and pieces going in and out. And it was the sort of two parts were at war with each other. Hmm. Why, why do you say that? What was, what was at war? This elaborate sets and costumes and this sort of fingernail sketch kind of a story. It just didn't seem to gel. Hmm. Now, is that something you want to revisit? I would. Mm-hmm. It, actually, Hal has told me that this production of it is going to be done or some version of this production in German at the, in Vienna, which is something I'll go to see and be happy uh, I, yeah, I'd be interested in seeing what happens to love music. Because it's interesting. It, in a way, love music harkens back to what you had to do with little Johnny Jones. Yeah. Although in this case, you had real life to draw from. Uh, it was an assignment. And I, I like to think that I can write assignments. Like it doesn't have to be out of my gut and out of my childhood. Uh, but we'll see. Since you say assignment – you know, early on, we certainly spoke of the fact that you taught. Do you now have a desire to teach or do you have you had the opportunity to teach writing for the theater or for the musical theater? I've taught both. I've taught master classes, which is pleasant because you can go in there for a day or a few days or something and do it. I couldn't teach all semester because I couldn't deal with all those papers. Uh, <laughs> Let alone scores and CDs. All that. So I just – I plug in sometimes when I'm asked and I'm free to do it. I, I do uh, 
workshops. I do master classes. I do those kind of things. So let me ask you, since you began writing musicals, had this desire to write plays, you've gone back and forth now between plays and musicals. For you as a playwright, what's what's the experience for you in each of those forms? Well, a musical is really more fun because unlike Goodspeed, there's other people in the room. And even in Goodspeed, you only have to do one-third of the work because it's got lyrics and music and dancing and stuff, so you don't have to fill up the whole stage by yourself. And if it's a good collaboration, like mine is with Jason Brown, we uh, I enjoy being there. I enjoy the room. I love to watch dances get formed. I love the whole thing. In a play, it's a little more lonely because it's just you and the, and the page. But the rehearsals are fun. It's You're the authority because you wrote the play. Uh, it's a different experience. But the experience that right now with, with Driving Miss Daisy is is has become a part of what it always is. We're about to go to the theater. The play is about to go into tech rehearsals. That's the same as it is with the musical, the same as it is with everything. It's sit in the dark theater and watch it shape up. Uh, that's the same, but the working on it is different. Hmm. Now, I've skipped over one of your plays, um, and I want to go back to it, which is Without Walls, which was seen at the taper in 2006. Yeah, it was done first up at Williamstown. Uh-huh. Uh, a wonderful actor named Joe Morton. And then um, Lawrence Fishburne did it. Uh, it. It was written about my years teaching school. Hmm. Uh, about the line that's blurred. I taught in a very liberal school without walls uh, where the teachers – the students call the teachers by their first names and uh, teachers would invite the kids to their houses all the time. And it was just – and the teachers tried to save the children from the parents, which you can't do. And I thought I would write a play about that. And it, but interestingly, the character who I presume is you, you made into an African-American man. Well, it wasn't really me. I mean, first of all, I was a drama teacher. But uh, he's a gay man. I'm not. He's a black man. I'm not. He was people that I had observed. Mm-hmm. Mixed thereof. Hmm. So I stretched it a little bit. Hmm. It had very good reception in Los Angeles, it did. as I recall. Is it a show that you're still seeking to have done? Is it a show that you still feel you want to work on? It needs a little more work, and yes, I'm hoping it's going to be done. Hmm. There's possibilities. Some things take longer than others. But again – Interestingly, you say – I made the mistake of suggesting that perhaps the character was drawn from your life. It was, it was others well, you observed. Well, But it's, it's, it's your experience certainly informed well, More it. or less. Every character I write is drawn from my life. It's from me. It's not my life per se. Mm-hmm. But it's me imagining what, I would, what those people would be like. Hmm. So are there other stories either out of your family's past or out of your experiences that – you think should be a play or a musical? Yeah, I think there are. I've been commissioned. I have two commissions. One for a play, another adaptation by um, Lynn Meadow for the Manhattan Theater Club 
a wonderful uh, book called Apples and Oranges by uh, Marie Brenner. It's about a brother's brother and sister getting along and fighting and so forth. And I've written a couple of drafts of that. I'm supposed to we're supposed to open it next May, so I better get going. Uh, and then I've been commissioned to write a play uh, for La Jolla in California. And it seems to be another uh, Atlanta play. So we'll see. When people come to you with a specific piece of material that they are commissioning you to write, do you do you simply take it in its own terms or do you sometimes find yourself thinking, why me for this story? Why did they ask me? Well, sometimes I first think, oh, I'm glad somebody wants me. And then <laughs> I think, how do, do I – can I relate to this material? And I never think, why me? I mean, because I don't know what me – I mean, I don't know – to me, I'm just a writer that can, that can write something. And I guess I'm viewed by producers as a guy who does this kind of thing as opposed to that. But I don't know about that. Uh, so I either think I can do it or I can't do it. Hmm. Not always right either way. There's certainly the potential with Miss Daisy on Broadway to set off yet another round of – not that it's ever not been produced, but but it's going to raise the show in everyone's minds again. Yeah, sorry. Well, a lot of people, A, weren't alive when Miss Daisy was off Broadway 23 years ago or weren't going to the theater. And a lot of people don't realize it was a play. They think that what we're doing is adapting that film – for the stage. Hmm. Is there a danger for audiences coming in expecting the broader world of the film, which on stage some of the characters are only spoken of, whereas from the film we've seen them? I don't know. We'll see. Hmm. I haven't had the experience of having an audience see this new version, so I don't know. Right. As we're speaking, you're you're still in rehearsals. So it's it's fascinating. So it sounds like you've got a lot going. Doesn't it? It's amazing. I'm lucky. You are lucky, and uh, we're very fortunate that you were willing to take the time to talk with us today on Downstage Center. Well, I'm flattered to be here, and I love to talk about myself, so it was a very pleasant way to spend a while. Well, thank you, Alfred Urey. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theater Wing and also be sure to check out our YouTube channel. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, please remember that we are a not-for-profit organization and consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.